I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today has the second winningest record over the last 10 years as the general manager of the Houston Rockets. He's a pioneer in analytics as it relates to acquisition of talent and on-game success. He understood and has demonstrated the ability to recruit elite players and has utilized the three-point shot as a strategic advantage. Daryl is a Renaissance man whether it's starting the MIT Sloan Conference, human rights initiatives, or writing a musical. He is bright, sophisticated, curious, and an active learner. My guest, the new president of basketball operations for the 76ers, Daryl Morey. Welcome, folks. Daryl, I mean, here you and I are Thanksgiving Day. We're both sitting alone having a podcast. I mean, it's good for COVID, man. Safe. Safe, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Although we don't have masks on. Yeah, I think we're okay by ourselves, hopefully. I work with Chuck Knoll. You're the closest thing from a Renaissance man that he was. I mean, oh. analytics, musical, human rights, starting the Sloan Conference. You've kind of done everything. Chuck Knoll is not good memories for me. I grew, grew up in Cleveland, and uh, unfortunately, he would always beat up on the Browns, sadly, for, for me. But that's interesting to know. You, you know so many interesting folks that, that I don't. In terms of this curiosity that you had, it had to start at an early age. I mean, probably before you're in high school, in terms of getting into the, the quants and figuring math. And, were, you, were you just really into math when you were young? I was, yeah, I was, I was into anything I was good at, <laughs> like, like a lot of kids. And, uh, you know, uh, math, uh, statistics was a big, big passion. I had a bit of a, I bit a bit of a challenging childhood. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't super personable. So math was the thing that I, uh, that I fell back into when things weren't going well. Well, I mean, it's something you could do yourself, right? You could be good at it. Uh, you could read about it. You could do solve problems. You could do things that, you know, continually reinforced what you enjoyed doing. Yeah, and I was in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. So, you know, hey, what else are you going to do? <laughs> Did you play other sports other than basketball? Basketball is my main sport, uh, you know, again, to, to fit with the challenging, you know, geek uh, childhood <laughs> that wasn't too personable. I'm very good at table tennis, so that would be my other... I'm probably better at table tennis than any sport, but now I'm into tennis. But it's table tennis and basketball were the ones I played. And then I was passionate about baseball, mostly because that was the only sport with data and you could use math on. So that, that was how I got into baseball. Well, you think about that, and if we just take a snapshot on uh, this past year and think about analytics and think of Tampa Bay and think about the Dodgers and what they did with their pitcher. Well, yeah, I talked to uh, Andrew. Friedman yesterday with the, with with the Dodgers. Dodgers and 
he's a good friend, a, a dear friend. He started at Tampa Bay. So it's sort of interesting. They faced each other. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think the thing with the pitcher is everyone was criticizing it, but the reason Tampa Bay's in the World Series is because they had a plan and executed it, and you don't go away from that just uh, just on a hunch uh, in the World Series would, would be my my answer to it. Yeah, no, I think that I, I, I'm doing a, a some work for the Mets right now, and that's one of the discussions we've been having with some of the candidates about you know whether or not that was a good decision. What would they have done? What would they have recommended? So that's been a. Uh, it, There's a lot of excitement about the Mets right now. Everyone's my my wife's from Jersey. She loves the Mets. She is so happy of the new the new ownership. So she's very very fired up. So well, he is definitely engaged, and he's willing to potentially follow the Dodgers model, which is acquire, you know, which is build your farm system, and when necessary, spend to get assets as you need them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was happy for Andrew because uh, he and I have been knowing each other since the early two thousands and we're both, we're, we were both looking for that first championship. So I asked him if it's as good as it is, as I hoped it is, because otherwise I'll just quit right now. <laughs> he confirmed it was great. No doubt. Even though they had the, uh, the COVID incident with Turner coming out there. Yeah, I think that'll be a blip in history, and, and they'll just remember they won the title. And on the Wikipedia page, it'll just say champion. It's not going to have the Turner stuff. On yeah, that. no, absolutely. So when you went from Northwestern, why did you pick MIT? Yeah, so interesting. I applied to several graduate schools while I was an undergrad, and MIT was the only one who accepted me, actually. Everyone else turned me down. So, <laughs> so right. there you go. That's the answer. <laughs> Within there, though, they had the analytics, the statistics. You built upon that. And when you were talking about that 2004, 2005, you, you'd come out, you started in a consulting firm when mm -hmm. you after you got your MIT. That's right. After you graduated. How'd you get into the consulting firm? Yeah, it's another sort of funny story on that, that I had tried since 96. So I'd worked in baseball with Stats Inc., the firm that, right, you know, right, right. Uh, highlighted in Moneyball, and I was trying to get a job in any major professional sport. I, I wasn't picky, basketball, baseball, and I couldn't. I just, you know, I just didn't have the way. I didn't know you yet. Uh, if I'd yeah. known you, I might have snuck in. Um, and so from 96 to 2002, I went to business school, and I realized that there was, I was never going to get a job in sports. I just didn't have a way in. So I decided I needed to get rich. <laughs> so I could be Steve Cohen and buy a team, right? And and then my my dumb plan was uh, I joined the consulting firm Parthenon because they were the one consulting firm that would give you equity in the clients you're working in. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll work on a client. It'll be an internet client. They'll get rich. Sure. Yeah. That's what we you know, Dot, dot, dot. I'm owning a team, you know? <laughs> and uh and little did I know, because I was too young, I didn't understand things, that the only firms that will give equity to hire a consultant are ones that are really not very good. <laughs> and so none of that equity ever turned out to be worth anything. And I, I was very lucky to get a chance to join the Celtics uh, later. Well, you came, I mean, you came in when they were just buying the team and you kind of were at the ground floor of trying to figure all this out. Yeah, and as you know, you're, you're an expert on – 
you know, how to get a career in sports, getting in with the, the new ownership at the beginning is, is a very good time to join, obviously. Your connection uh, with Les Alexander, how did that happen? I mean, you began to build some momentum within the Celtics in terms of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You had uh, Danny Ainge, you had owners, you know, Pags and, and, and Wick that were uh, endorsing what you were working on. But how did that transition go? How did you end up in Houston? Yeah, it's a great question and uh, maybe maybe instructive. You know, it's a networking business, right? Once I had my foot in the door, you know, I was like, I'm not going to waste that opportunity. So to your point, we had, because of Wick and Steve Pelyuka and the work that myself and like Mike Zarin and others were doing with Danny Ainge, it was starting to get a bit of a reputation in the league, even a couple of years in into that. At the same time, I was networking with lots of, um, uh, you know, folks like yourself, headhunters, you know, not, not, not as high level as you, but the ones that I could at the time. And at the same time, not known to very few people, including not known to me, Carol Dawson, the GM in Houston was looking to move on and retire. He was in his, uh, he was in his mid to late seventies at the time. And so Leslie was on a search using a consultant and it just so happened to be one of the ones that I had networked uh-huh. with. Yeah. Now what's funny though, this you'll love this part, Jed. They didn't see me as a candidate. They knew that Leslie wanted to hire someone like me, but they didn't think I was ready. And they're probably right to be fair. I was like super young and very green. And so they were asking me, who should Leslie hire? You, you know the space. He wants someone like this. Who should he hire? So I was actually giving him na- names for like a solid year. Hey, maybe you should look at Billy Bean. And so they did reach out to Billy Bean. Uh, hey, you should look at this person, that person. Who, again, in my mind, I thought they were more qualified. And they, they interviewed with Leslie. Leslie hated all of them. <laughs> actually, Billy never interviewed, but they reached out to him. And so... Uh, after a solid year of this, they came to me and were like, you know what? He just wants to talk to you. Like, <laughs> and so they told me that and I was on a plane there two days later. I landed at 9 a.m., met with Leslie. By 2 o'clock, he hired me. That's the story. <laughs> so as, as your philosophy is unfolding and you're bringing people in, you're executing upon it, I mean, there are two parts of it. There's there's the team building side, and then there's the actual execution on the court of taking that data and and understanding how you're going to build your team to take what you've worked on and execute it. How do those two match up? I sort of take it at a broader level, which is what you just described is what every GM, every person in my role has to do, which is, you know, execute on the court and execute off the court. I mean, the only difference is we're using data to try and make better decisions as we go along the way. Uh, And going in with a humble approach that you probably don't know the answer and data is going to help you get to the right answer. So I don't know if I answered your question, but, um, you know, we use it in everything. And it's really just the same questions that have always been there. How do you win the title? How do you increase your chance of winning the title? It's just we're using data to help execute on that in a way that improves it. So when you're thinking asset value of your players or asset value of your targets, how do you determine that? The book Moneyball is instructive. So the first thing you do is you say, 
how much money is there in the system, right? So in the NBA, that's roughly almost always the luxury tax line times mm -hmm. 30 teams. In football, it's a hard cap, so it's very easy to tell how many how much money is in the system. Baseball is a little harder because their tax system is a little squishier. Right. Um, but anyway, at the end of the day, you come to like how much money is out there to chase how many players. And you're essentially saying like, look, how much will each player you buy increase your chance of winning the title relative to how much you pay them? Because you've got a certain box to fit it all in and you have to stack up your players in that box such that at the end, your odds of winning the championship are hopefully above 5%. And if you're really, really good, you can get to, you know, 50% levels in, in the NBA like uh, Golden State did when they had four all-stars. So, so yeah, that, I mean, that's really the – when you're trying to build a portfolio of players, that's what you're doing. It's a little easier in baseball because you have a big farm system, sure. big roster. In basketball, really, you're just – you have to have one of the very best players in the league as your best player. You got to have your second best player be one of the top 10 to 15 players in the league. You have to have your third best player be about a top 50 player. If you got those three, then the rest of the roster can matter. If you don't have those three – you're probably not going to win the title that year. I wish I wish our my job was more challenging on this. Well, when you say best, uh, are we talking about both sides of the ball? Are we talking about scoring? How, how are you How are you defining your your? Yeah. I mean, obviously you you acquired Harden, which turned out to be a huge superstar. Yeah, no, that was obviously one of the best moves. I I would say, yeah, if you're one of the best players in the league, it's nearly impossible not to be good on both ends. Like, if you're going to make the impact you need to make, you have to at least be average on offense or defense and then be elite on the other side. Okay. And so uh, there's been a few rare exceptions where you're super elite on defense or offense and then a little bit below average on the other side of the ball. But we have a unique sport in that, you know, you're impacting both sides, offense and defense. Uh, that's not true of all the major, obviously, baseball and, and football. That's not true. Because of that, your impact even grows even more. And you have to, you can't be like a zero on one uh, and or the other. The one way I describe how important our top players are in basketball relative to, say, baseball. So, you know, the let's just take one, you know, maybe the greatest player of recent bet like trout for example sure. is off the charts for a little while and imagine in baseball when when he goes up to bat and you know does whatever like hits a home run or whatever then after he crosses home plate he goes you know what i'm still the best player so i'm just gonna go up to bat again <laughs> <laughs> so that's essentially basketball on offense like joel Embiid gets the ball you know in, in the paint scores Comes back down the next time the floor, he's like, I'm still the best option. So I'm going to, you know, throw it to me. Or Ben Ben Simmons in transition, you know, down, <laughs> downhill. You can call your number over and over. And, off. That really, and there's only five of you versus, you know, nine on the field or nine in the lineup. So it, it's, it's a massive difference. So. How do you factor chemistry in? I mean, in terms of your, I mean, as I look from a distance with some of the, the matchups, I mean, with Westbrook and Harden, I mean, they knew each other from before. You know, bringing them back in. Some people look at the chemistry side. They look at how does that factor into the analytics? Yeah, it's big. So a couple places it comes in. I would say first, if you're not one of the teams with the top one or two player at the start and you have a chance to win the title, it's not going to matter as much. Like you can have a real cohesive team that 
chugs out 30 wins out of 80, and no one's going to be all that happy. Really where the chemistry comes in is when you're trying to put the last pieces in to give yourself a chance to win the title. Then I think it matters a lot, right? So you got to make sure they have a complementary game and a complementary personality at times with your top players. So again, everything, at least in the NBA, as you've seen how important these top players are, that dictates everything. It dictates that your, your other players around them, their games have to fit, their personalities, they don't have to fit, but they can't like create problems for the, the, you know, the culture of the, of the team at the time. And so, you know, like, for example, if I was rebuilding, which I haven't done for a while, but if I was, you know, your last few guys on the roster, you're probably taking bets on, you know, guys that, you know, aren't great off the court or, or you know, different things. But on a team when it's really good, you want to take less of those risks. You, you just – it's just not worth it, right? They, they could create more downside than upside. Now, what about the players driving decisions more than they used to? Right. I mean, you got agents involved. You got players trying to determine where they want to go. They kind of talk behind the scenes. And then you're trying to orchestrate whatever you need to do to rebuild your organization. I mean, how does that all get sorted out in the NBA world? Yeah, I think it makes sense, really, because at the end of the day, the NBA is only as good as its great players. Right. And and those great players, as you just heard, drive massive amounts of value for the franchises they're in. And because of that, our job is to create an environment for them to excel, not only for them to excel, but for other top players to see how much they excel and say, I want to be part of that culture. I want to be part of that organization. So if you think about it, 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 it makes sense why it's happening. I think the question of, is it good, is sort of separate from, from that's more of like of a league question. I would say it's good. Like I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm big on, uh, you know, individual freedoms and rights. And like, yeah, look, I right. think, I think the people generating the value, which are these top players, should have a big say in, in what they do. So that, that's my belief. It was interesting. I did Andy Reid a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about how important it was for the players to understand he was trying to maximize their ability to make money, and that he was trying to develop plays and systems that would put them in positions where they could maximize their talent and, and thereby enhance his relationship with them and enhance them wanting to play hard for him. That's exactly right. If they feel like they're part of the decision-making, they're more bought in. Uh, now I know why I, I knew Andy Reid was a genius football <laughs> coach, but now I'm, now I'm trying, I'm understanding why he's so successful. You know, I'm, uh, my recent coach, Mike D'Antoni, I'm excited to work with Doc Rivers uh, again. But Mike, he would, he, he sounds exactly like Andy Reid. When Mike meets with players, he says, look, I'm going to put you in the position to succeed. And that's going to, that's going to help your career get you paid, right? And probably get paid here. But even if it's not here, I'm going to, you're going to look good and it'll be somewhere else. And it creates a, a, a virtuous cycle of people wanting to join, more success, more guys get paid, and it just creates a positive feedback loop. What do you think the two or three key things are to put yourself in position to compete yearly, not just once in a while, yearly to run in an NBA championship? 
Yeah. So for the NBA to compete yearly, I mean, in every sport, it's hard to have a consistent winning track record. In fact, you could argue it can be detrimental. You've had it on the years, like in the last 10 years, not maybe only the Spurs may be ahead of you. Spurs, the only more wins. Yeah, we've never had a losing season. So, right. and, and again, I, you could argue, honestly, in fact, really smart people hit me go like, that's not smart. You should like lose, get a high pick. And actually they're not wrong. Like if you, I mean, all else equal, you'd want to never lose and be able to create sure. the same number of chances. It often isn't though. Those high picks are really, really valuable uh, in the NBA, but the way to do it in the NBA, yeah, you have to do it the way, we managed to do it in Houston, which is after you lose your superstars, Tracy and Yao Ming, uh, you have to try to win a lot of games, but do it with young players and people with lots of upside. And then when that team starts to win, either that team turns into your championship team or those players who are now great and going to get paid, um, you have to do what we did, which is you know, trade multiple of them for uh, James Harden, who was picked higher in the draft. So that's really the only way to to maintain it. And it's it's really, really hard to do. In fact, I don't know. Actually, I don't know of any team that went from championship contender to championship contender, contender without having a losing season. Well, I mean, the Spurs were pretty good for a period of time in terms of doing it. I mean, they... Yeah, so they stayed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. So they went from obviously the Tim Duncan to the to the yeah. Kawhi to the then, Kawhi core. And I believe I believe they had one losing season in there though, but it was only one and it was probably by design knowing that they're very good, <laughs> as you know. So yeah. no, absolutely. So when you think about basketball NBA going forward, what what do you what do you see as things that may as you're analyzing it? I mean, you're usually ahead of the curve in terms of what you think the next the trends are gonna be. What what's what do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I see lots of really exciting things, whether it's like um, in, you know, doing things where you're analyzing, you, you know, the, um, I'm hesitating because some of this stuff is like stuff that's it, it, <laughs> Just say, hey. Well, why don't I talk about Encore? I'm excited about a lot of it. Like what I love about Adam is he's willing to, to make the game better. And I, I see things like, you know, overtime being like the Elam ending in the All-Star game, you know, one free throw for every trip to the line to speed up the game. You know, one thing I love about the NBA is just, um, you know, always innovating the rules. And and actually, that's one thing I think hurts baseball is that, like, right. my, one of my favorite stories is I was talking to Bill James, and I know they're looking at a whole suite of changes to help baseball be more fan-friendly from a viewership perspective. It was like, you know, uh, less pitching changes, you know, all the things that you, you probably shifting, know. Shifting, eliminate the yeah, shift. Shifting, anything. And after like two years and multiple committees, and this was a couple of years ago, the only change they did of all the like 50, or, you know, really interesting changes was you, you can just go to first base on an intentional walk. That was it. That was the only change. Now they've made a few other changes in the last couple of years, but like I couldn't help but laugh that like they worked for years to come up with that is the only change they could get approved. So. so from your perspective, moving into a new organization, I mean, you've been with one for a long period of time. How do you get yourself up to speed to understand what the organization's like, you know, what it is working with the different levels and to create the alignment you need in order to be successful? 
Yeah, it's a big reason why we're doing this on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so intense. Um, it's so intense because there's so much to work on. And I had to make a quick choice because normally you want to spend the time, put in some infrastructure, make sure, you know, the people and the systems and everything are, are moving in the right direction. But uh, and actually, I thought I was going to have at least a year to, to think about and which team I might go to and stuff like that. And then Philadelphia called and was, you know, sort of amazing that Doc and Elton and the ownership wanted me here. And it was like days before the draft. And I was like, you know, if we don't just forget all that other stuff and get the draft and the trades right, our like it doesn't matter like what we do later. So now I'm hopefully soon I'll be able to take us. We're starting the season in a few days. Yep. But once we get into like a few weeks into the season, as long as it's not uh, going very poorly there'll be hopefully some time to think through how to like set up the infrastructure because that's the right order. You want to have the right people, the right systems, the right processes uh, before you're having to like just dive right into decision-making. So. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Mark Shapiro, who's I, I think as good as anyone in the business when it comes to understanding continuous improvement and decision-making and participation and inclusion. I mean, he's got eight people who are general managers in major league baseball have all come up underneath him. I know we only have five. He's got his feet right now. So, so, I, so in terms of his inclusion, are there any things you do specifically to help develop your people? Yeah, that's a huge priority for me. And yeah, we have might be six teams now are former Houston folks uh, in the in the NBA, and obviously uh, RC Buford and Popovich have had a great track record. So, I, I so I, I do think that's a huge priority, mostly because. I want great people in my organization. Sure. So great people are probably going to graduate out eventually. Right. And so to me, that's very validating that we have hired great people. And in terms of developing them, I, I push things down pretty heavily decision-making. My general philosophy is get great people and just sort of get out of the way, give them a, you know, general guidance. The nice thing about our sport is like, it's not hard to figure out the goal. <laughs> like, You'd be shocked. And I worked a lot in other businesses before I got to sports, but you'd be shocked. Other businesses, sometimes it's hard to know. Look, is it revenue? Is it profit? Is it, you know, for us, it's just win the title. So it's, it's straightforward and that helps a lot because, you know, with every decision, I tell people, will this move us closer to winning the championship or move us farther away? And, you know, not every decision is that simple, but at a high, at its highest level, it's not hard to know. So, I let all the people who work with me, they're calling teams, you know, training, negotiation, training, all that. Just try to try to make sure that we have great people and they feel like they're engaged. In terms of uh, player development, wellness, mental health, and all, are there any things you've done you think that are unique and, and, and special? We've done nothing unique. <laughs> it's not proprietary that you can... <laughs> Probably... For me, on the health wellness side, maybe the the place where we've added the most value is what not to do. <laughs> um, like there's just I'll just say there's a lot of pseudoscience and a lot of like um, for lack of a better word, trash stuff on the health and wellness side where even if they're running studies, they're running studies on like six people and publishing papers and and so, I would say maybe our biggest value add is like, let's do the things that help you maintain your body and your 
career, like focus on core strength versus, you know, mirror muscles um, that have proven track records that help people have longer careers and avoid the, you know, the companies that have devices they're just looking to sell and that's their business model. So if anything, it would be, it's avoiding the stuff that's bad out there. How about load management? How much do you get into that? Yeah, so there isn't great science to that, Jed. There just isn't. Um, I would say there's where you're using a lot of intuition and doing what we do in our calculations of everything, which is like looking at the upside of a decision versus down. So if it's a regular season game, you're looking at the uh, the stress that's been put on their body recently, maybe on a back-to-back, uh, and that stress is in the red zone. There is some evidence that then not – overstressing yourself the next day will lower your chance of injuries. I will say that it's not good evidence, but it's evidence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're, with your top players, you're using that. You're, you're smartly using that information. Uh, that said, if you're in game seven of the Western Conference finals and you're in the red zone, you know, these, you know, you have a conversation with the player and you, and you say, you know, let's talk about what to do here. But the reality is you play the game to win the championship. So, like, for example, Golden State, the year they lost to Toronto, we were probably a big reason, unfortunately, for, for them. We, they were redlining everybody. They, every player on their roster was going 42 to 45 minutes, and that caught up to them. But to defend Golden State, they're not winning the title that year or getting past us if they don't do that. So what's the right answer? I don't know. I mean, that's that 2018 team of yours was unbelievable. Yeah, that team was probably the best team in basketball year, but we didn't prove it on the floor. But you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah. I have to, I have to have solace in reading how it's one of the best teams ever to not win the title. So that's uh, uh, they don't have a trophy for that yet, Jed. You gotta, you gotta fix that. They gotta have the, they have the best team not to win the title trophy that we can throw on a show. Well, you've got resources in Philly, so I. I Again, I appreciate you coming on. I really wish you, you good luck in your new in your new venture, and that uh, you uh, you and I will stay in contact. And I really enjoy your intellect and uh, the inquisitiveness of how you go about things. Thanks so much, Jed. I appreciate your time. Happy My Thanksgiving. Pleasure. Happy All Thanksgiving right. to you.